have a dream that all men are created Hello everyone and welcome back to Your Story, another episode so close to the last one. Isn't it wonderful? I'm your host Ian Kath, this is episode 57. Yes, yes, it's wonderful to be able to get out two episodes so close to each other after such a long period of time between drinks, so to speak. It's very much like that. The way the episodes go out and being spasmodic is very much the way I find people. Sometimes I've got to be very patient, very tenacious. I seed the idea with somebody that I'd like to sit down and record their story and it takes quite a while sometimes for people to find the time or the inclination to get around to it. I've got one fellow in Sydney I'm looking forward to recording one day. He has at the moment told me he doesn't want to do it, but I'm hoping that as the years go by he will soften to the idea, and I only see him once every few years, and I'll eventually be able to get his story. If I can, it will be an extraordinary story, but uh, that's yet to be realised. I hope it comes off one day. I'll uh, mention it to you that it's that particular episode if it ever comes about. But this episode has taken me about 18 months to pull off from when I first mentioned it to John and said that I'd like to have him on the show and uh, just through a whole series of events it's taken that long to put it together. But finally we've got it and we've got it coming to fruition today. I'd love to know what you think of it and if you like what you hear at your story maybe you're interested in doing something similar in your own world. Maybe you'd like to sit down with some people in your world and record their life stories. You know maybe particularly one of the older people, one of the older members of your family. Well, that's what my other podcast and site, Create Your Life Story at createyourlifestory.com is all about. It's all about showing people how to record those audio life stories of people in their voice so that their memories will hang about forever. And also, it gives you a great reason to sit down with somebody and ask those questions you've always wanted to ask. Like I said, go check it out. It's my other show at createyourlifestory.com and uh, see what you think. But here on Your Story, we have all of this great content, and I still see people going to the uh, podcast episodes from years ago. It's all still downloading, it all bubbles along. When these episodes go up, they tend to get downloaded pretty heavily in the first few weeks. But there are episodes way back at episode 5 and episode 10 that people discover and go and listen to. It's uh, wonderful to see that these stories are really quite immortal. They are just the stories of people's lives, and they just keep on giving as they sit there waiting for people to come and do a search on Google and discover them. All these stories are quite evergreen because they are just life stories. Let us know what you think of the show at yourstorypodcast.com, or you can place a comment at the end of the post. Love to know what your thoughts are, and I'd particularly love to know your thoughts about this particular episode today, particularly if you are maybe an aspiring author yourself and you're looking for a little bit of a leg up, a bit of guidance. And if you go to the site, you can get all the links to iTunes and the feeds. You can uh, make sure that you've subscribed over on iTunes so you get all the episodes as regular or irregular that they come out. You don't have to worry about coming back to the site. There are links to Stumble and Dig and all sorts of places. There's even a search window at Amazon because Christmas is coming up and you might want to do your Christmas shopping. And if you want to do it on Amazon, why don't you use the link on yourstorypodcast.com? Because you'll get exactly the same shopping experience and I'll get a small return to help fund the yeah, costs of putting out your story. 
something I don't get a return for financially, but I get a return for it in the value of the music is iota alliance who has iota promenet which is the place where i go to get the music if you like the music why don't you check out iota alliance and uh, consider buying the music from the artists who supply it so i can use it as background music in the show i get the opportunity from time to time to sit down with people and talk about their lives because i'm actually interested in what they've done and how they've got there today's show is one of those it all started in the 1990s when there was this hubbub this little buzz that was going around the Australian culture. And it was about a book called He Died with a Falafel in His Hand. And there was, you know, it was developing a bit of a cult following. I never read it. There was a stage show. There was a movie eventually made about it. And I only read it a couple of months ago. And it's basically a whole series of short stories of share house living and the mess that some people get into. But because of Falafel, we all got to know this name, John Birmingham. And then a few years later, about 99, a tome by the name of Leviathan, the unauthorised biography of Sydney, came out, written by John. And I went and got it, and I sat down and I read it, and I fell in love with the writing style, with the depth of information that was in it, and... I then went to live in Sydney and fell in love with Sydney in a way that I never fully understood because I was able to get into the minutiae, the background history and understanding of what that city is actually like. Because of that experience, I've always been following John and as he's been bringing out other books, I've been going about reading them as well, enjoying the alternative history genre that he uh, plays around with. And I know a lot of people out there would love to have the level of success that he's managed to achieve, but I was interested to know how he got there. And I've been quite surprised to discover that it's not as you might expect. Yes, it is hard work. Yes, it is talent. But it is not as you would expect necessarily. Sometimes the uh, good fortune fairy will shine on you and help you get places through circumstances. Sometimes you'll just have to knuckle down and work hard. I think there is something in this particular episode to help anybody who's interested in becoming a professional author and uh, it might be revealing for you. I'd love to know your thoughts on the site. This is a story of the twists and turns of fate and the dedicated work ethic that is John's story. Twenty fourth of November, twenty ten. I'm sitting with John Birmingham. G'day, Birmo. Hello, mate. How are you doing? Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for coming and telling me your story because I'm a little bit interested to know where you came from, how you got here, and who you are. Because you seem to be a mass of contradictions. A little bit I know about you. You, mm. you uh, easily appear at one level to be a working class lad, and then at another level you complete, seem to be a complete egghead because you have this range of skills. Yeah, well, my, my background is, is working class. I'm not myself, I'm, you know, I'm a middle-class white man. My, my mum and dad were, uh, oh, still are, English working-class stock. They uh, both came out of Liverpool in, um, they were born, I think dad was born 39, mum would have been 44 in the, um, sort of the, the back end of the war. In fact, I, I think there was a, someone called there was a German air raid on Liverpool while she was being while she was being born. Um, so they, you know, in those days, the, the class system over there was still pretty rigid. And 
there was no getting out of it. You were born to your station and, and you stayed there. So I was very lucky, and I guess they were too. That What was their background? What was their careers? Oh, Dad was a fitter and turner, worked in a factory. Um, and Mum stayed home, I don't know, first six or seven years. Myself and Andrew, my brother, were around. But uh, eventually we got to a point we could look after ourselves and, and she... Uh, took herself off and learned bookkeeping and, and secretarial skills and um, she went off and ran a doctor's surgery for most of her working life. Well, we know what turned it, what you turned into. If you had a state in the UK, would you, oh, what, what, what I actually do wonder that sometimes. I I don't know that I would have. We went back there, the state in the UK that is, and the reason I say that is we, we went back in 77. Uh, Seven years after you came out. Yeah. My... Uh, my, my mother in particular, I think, missed her extended family. And um, Dad had sisters over here. But she came from a very large family. They're, they're like worlds unto themselves, large families. Yeah. And uh, I think she wanted to go back to the world she knew. We ended up back in the UK for about six months or so in, in 77. And in a sense, it was the best and worst time to be there because it was it was before Thatcher got in and tore everything apart. And that, that country was uh, very much in, you know, an accelerating decline. Uh, I, I recall, you know, lots of strikes. It's, sort of, it's the sort of thing kids don't really notice when they're growing up. But I actually recall lots of power failures and strikes and garbage piling up on the streets the, the months we were there and um, the whole place it just reeked of desperation and, and, and depression and the end of things and my parents eventually left again because of that they just realised they'd made a terrible mistake going back it was actually dealing with the school bureaucracy taught them that they, they just couldn't live in the place anymore but I I had decided and I was you know in my early teens I think at that point so it, it wasn't a um it wasn't a bullshit affectation. I had decided that as soon as I got to a point where I could leave school in England, I was going to do that, get a job, save enough money for an airfare and come straight back to Australia because I just looked at this joint and thought, this is a dead end. Uh, I, I, I don't want to be here. and I, I don't want to finish growing up here. So, so th But that was because you also had the knowledge of what Australia was like. That's right. If you yeah. had never come out the first time. If I lived over there, look, I don't know, because most of my cousins have ended up becoming, you know, reasonably successful uh, people. The, the one thing Thatcher did was uh, shatter a lot of the old class restrictions. Uh, it, it's one of the things that's not understood about her is that she's a, a sort of a demonic figure on the left, but there's there's a very sort of, there's an old fashioned right-wing clique, the, the landed gentry, I guess you'd call them, who also regard her as a, a demonic influence because of um, the way she took apart established power structures. We often think about her destroying the unions, but um, she also, she destroyed a lot of the inherited privilege of that old parasitic landed class that had uh, been living off the place for a thousand years. So gave your cousins a chance? I guess so, yeah. You know, they, okay. they're they all, you know, they, they went off to, to university so and they they became professionals. And you, that would not have happened in uh, my parents' day. Do you think you would have still become a writer? I don't know. Who knows? Uh, I, I can recall wanting to be a writer when I was a kid, like a, a, a really 
young kid, seven, eight, nine years old, I used to uh, sit up late on school nights, scratching stories out into exercise books, a little like this one here on my desk. I still use them. Mm. And, um, yeah, classic school-lined book, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And uh, I'd, I'd always had two or three, you know, as you do at school, there was always two or three that didn't get used. And I used to... Uh, I used to copy out other people's stories. Uh, John O'Grady was one uh, I often mention. He was an Australian satirist, humorist, social observer in the, the 1960s. He wrote a book under the name Nino Colotta, uh, They're a Weird Mob, very, very famous yes, yes, Australian I'll book for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was like it was a it was a bit like the Demi Denko saga in some ways. He pretended to be this Italian migrant and then wrote about the locals from that side's point of view. But in fact, O'Grady himself was a, was old Australian. But it wasn't done with the sort of malign scheming intent, I guess, that characterised a, a lot of what Helen did. So it, it became you know a very very fondly remembered text. I loved it. I, I remember reading it and laughing out loud. It was the first time I had ever LOL'd at anything in text, and I, I wanted to know how it worked. And so I used to sit up late with an exercise book and a, just a blue biro, and I copied it out line for line, paragraph after paragraph, page after page, trying to work out where his rhythms came from, where the laughter came from, like how it was that just squiggles on a page could could reach out and, and make someone laugh. And was that a sheer pleasure? Um, I, well, I guess it must have been pleasurable because I, I wouldn't have done it otherwise, uh, but there was... There was an element of grim determination about it too. Like I, I just, I wanted to know how he had come about this power, and for me, it felt like a power that he had. And the way for me to do that, in in my mind, was to take his work apart, as I said, word by word, and rebuild it, and see. It was almost like reverse engineering something. Yeah, it to, is. To, it to is. see how, um, to see how it works, and to see if you can build it yourself. Now, you're known for your satirical style and uh, being quite blunt at times were you that way before and that's why you were attracted to O'Grady or did you sort of learn it from people like the O'Grady's oh I mean I obviously picked up a lot from from guys like him but I was always a smart ass um, at school it got me into trouble a lot there were like real trouble at one point there was a, a Christian brother who took an intense personal dislike to me and eventually ended up you know, taking it out on me with his fists, which required my dad to go up to the school with his monkey wrench and you know, threaten to reorganise that brother's cranial plates for him. Um, but that all came from the fact that, uh, you know, I, I was a smartass, and uh, whereas, you know, a lot of other teachers... Yeah, teachers are pretty cool. They'll often see kids cutting up in class, and they can see the, the spark behind yeah. it and although you know they they walk a fine line between you know this kid i guess creating anarchy but also letting a, a free spirit have its run and i was very lucky i had some some teachers who got my sense of humor and and, and let me run with it a bit this guy he ended up in jail actually he was a pedophile and uh, yeah, this christian brother yeah i guess he was very very tightly wrapped because he had this secret sinful uh contradictory you know, life, yeah. contradiction yeah. within his character and you know some 14 year old sniping him from the sidelines uh it just it unraveled him i guess and he just uh 
Were you exploded on me one day. Were you a popular kid at school? Um, well, I must have been. We, they elect my the blokes I was with elected me a prefect, and that was that was a popularity contest. So, mm. Um, mm. I guess yeah, there was. It was funny when I, I I went on and lived a public life afterwards. I was contacted by blokes I'd gone through school with. Almost inevitably, every single one of them had been a loner through high school and had had quite a horrible experience of it, and just wanted to unload on somebody about it. And, I remember looking back and thinking, oh, you know, that's not my memory at all. So uh, I, I guess those poor buggers had a very different um, experience. Having said that, I didn't much enjoy school. Uh, I found it dull and I found the, the restrictions really difficult to deal with. And in a sense, that probably has led me to the, the way that I live now. Uh, I decided very early that I, I wasn't good at living by other people's precepts and uh, within a couple of hours of starting my first job I just thought I'm not doing this for the rest of my life. Like, what was that first job? Um, I was working as a sales assistant at DJ's as a Christmas casual. David Jones the yeah. merchant? No it was Myers actually yeah it was Myers. Uh, you know I didn't mind that I was working on the lolly shop um, I was working with a smoking hottie actually and I um, it was a very sort of narrow counter space we worked in and she was brushing up against me constantly, which okay. uh, that was terrible. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> I was harassed. At least I like to think myself harassed. Right. And, uh, but I just, I found that whole thing of, you know, dress this way, turn up at this time, do this stuff. Think, it just drove me nuts. I know the feeling. And, I found that, you know, the more often I, I, I found myself in paid employment working for someone else, the worse it got. It culminated with me, I had to pay off some student loans, not very big ones, but, you know, they needed paying. I took a job with the Defence Department in Canberra, which I really, the, the work itself, I really liked. It was a research position and I liked finding stuff out. Uh, and I was lucky in a sense that I worked, first of all, with the Army and then with... Uh, uh, some guys in, in what was then called DSB, Defence Security Branch, and the, the nature of the work I did allowed me to be out of the office on my own, just gathering information for weeks at a time, uh, which suited me perfectly. It didn't suit the department that was training me, however, they wanted me to go into a policy position, and they eventually tried to pull me back in and... Um, uh, I remember they, they wanted to post me to this policy section. It was the one area of the department I always said I never wanted to work, and so that, of course, was where they sent me. I put my uh, resignation in that afternoon and um, hitched a rift back to Queensland with a mate and started writing the following week. Do you have an issue with authority? Look, you know, because yeah, I, I guess I do. The Christian brother thing and the uh, whole Joe era, because you've done your fair share of demonstration against. I, I have an issue with uh, what I think of as, as, as illegitimate or, or pig ignorant authority, I guess. I still work with the army now. I, I, about once or twice a year, I go down to uh, Pakapanya Lord Staff College and run training scenarios for them where they, they have this group, the force development group, which tries to think 30, 40 years ahead. What kind of conflicts are they likely to be involved in? What kind of technology and training are they going to bring to bear on that? And I love those sessions. I, you know, they fly me down, they put me up 
in the barracks, we have dinner in the mess, and you know, I, I run the the program, and it's you know, I'm, I'm dealing with 100, 150 people in uniform, we're all like saluting each other, and it just it's so completely removed from my life that I, I just I, I find it fascinating. But I, I think the thing I like the most is that although I can go and see it as a tourist, tourist almost. Um, I'm not subject to that power structure. But those, you know, I, I like those guys. I get on with them very well. Uh, you know, I, I very much admire what could they you, do. Could you have been in the military? No. Just, no, I, I couldn't because, you know, you would inevitably come across some dickhead at some point. Um, who Wants you to paint rocks. Yeah, and it just that sort of thing, it just drives me spare. So uh, it's why... I left and it's why I ended up working for myself. So I, I don't have an issue with authority as such. I you know, did a, you know, a lot of history and, and, and politics and, and I accept once social structures get beyond the size and complexity of a simple village um, that they need to organise themselves and, and, and one of the basic organising principles of successful societies is authority. The idea of authority invested in positions rather than in individuals, and uh, so I don't have an issue. I'm, you know, I'm not sort of James Dean looking for something to rebel against. Uh, but but as an individual, I do have issues with idiots in authority, and you know, I'm in the very happy position of, of not having to listen to them mostly. And you uh, manage to stir up a bit of flack from time to time with your columns, and, yeah. and the like. You, you don't go half-hearted when somebody is going wrong. You you hammer them sometimes. I do, I do, and it's all good fun. Um, and I get hammered in return. If you want to, you know, have some fun, Google up my name with a string of insults after it, and uh, people come back just as hard as as I go out. That, that, that is a hangover from my earlier days where when I started out I was working in the, the street press and, and student magazines and all these different fringe publications just trying to string together enough work to pay the rent and, and buy a little bit of food. I, I very much worked as what I thought of in those days as an activist journalist. I, I wasn't much interested in the traditional Formula, which is where you, you went off and got a cadetship at the Courier Mail, or you know you did a journalism degree, um, and you very much adhered to the the traditional precepts of the business, the idea of you know non bias and, and, and balance. Because from what I could see, having covered a lot of stuff like riots and demos, that facade of balance was just that it was a facade that you know there was always an agenda running and I figured um, from a personal point of view it was probably better for me just to declare my biases up front write what I wanted publish where I wanted it and people could could screen out the stories you know if they didn't like the bias they, they just didn't read them of course what happens is, is the complete opposite if they don't like the stories because they perceive them as biased nowadays because media is a two-way uh, process, they just get on and start smashing you in the comment threads, um, which which I'm which suits the media with. anyway. Yeah, I'm I'm totally up for that. Those those early years when you were uh, making a name for yourself, so to speak, um, that was the price to be paid to become successful. By the looks of it, all those years that led on to falafel. 
Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, I, I, I became more successful than I imagined I would be. Uh, Did you ever expect to make a living out of writing? Uh, look, I expected to be able to pay my bills, but I, I didn't expect to, you know, be able to service a big mortgage um, or put kids through private schools. And consequently, like a lot of people, I guess, in my 20s, um, when I was starting out, I, I didn't see that in my future. Um, I, I saw myself having adventures, basically. The, the thing that writing offered was the possibility of going to interesting places and meeting people and writing stories about them. And, and that was what really attracted me, the, the, the idea that I might have an interesting life. Uh, and that would make up for the fact that I didn't really expect to be well compensated for it. Have, have you managed to achieve that? Have you travelled a great no. deal and had those grand experiences? Not much, no, actually. <laughs> that's, that's a funny thing. Uh, I, I didn't end up travelling. I've travelled vast amounts of, of distance within Australia with work and I've gone overseas a little bit with work. By the time I got to the point where I could afford to travel, I had become so uh, committed in other areas, like, you know, family effectively because mm. I had kids that I just wasn't able to um, to find the time. So, you know, my, my travel now is almost all professional. Like, you know, I'll go to the US for a couple of weeks for a book tour or going next year, but taking the family where I, I don't now take myself off to, you know, war zones in the way that I once imagined that I would. Well, you can't even sit in the Macquarie Library for a year researching Leviathan, can you? No. Not with a family? No, no, that's right. It, it actually, it, 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 it is an issue, like, uh, and it raises its head at least two or three times a year. Uh, after the Bali bombing, I had New York Magazine wanted me to fly up there for a couple of weeks and you know, write them a story about the Bali bombing. But uh, my wife made it very clear. She thought that was a very poor investment of my time. And again, the War Memorial asked me a while ago, a couple of years ago, if I wanted to go to Afghanistan for six months and write the unit history of the guys up there, which is something I would have been all over, like a cheap Chinese suit, ten years ago. But nowadays, you know, even if it was in Afghanistan, I, I just I can't be away for six months. And uh, because it is Afghanistan, of course, you know, there is a small to middling chance you're going to get your ass shot off while yeah. you're over there. So, um, no, despite having actually gone into feature writing and magazine work in particular with this idea that I would go off and have great adventures, I, I didn't end up travelling that far. I, I, I moved around Australia a lot, but I, I, didn't, um, I didn't end up travelling overseas much with it. One thing I've noticed following you on Twitter is you've got a pretty strong work ethic. You, uh, I've heard it said by all writers, if you want to be successful, you've got to put your ass in the seat and write. Mm. Write, write, write. That's... The end of the conversation. Yeah, well, that's it. And if you don't write, then at the end of the day, you've got nothing to hand in. So, um, but you, but some people write an hour. You, you write six, ten, twelve hours. You, you work hard. For yeah. Uh, look, it's. It, I, I couldn't do it if I didn't like doing it. Like if it was work I didn't enjoy, there's no way I could. I could hammer away at it for for ten or twelve hours so, a day. So, what does writing give you? Because you've. I see two vastly different styles that you write, which is, you know, the uh, reflective indulgence, which is the uh, falafel, and then there is this, well, and I suppose three, there's the middle one, which is the intellectual 
fantasy, which is the trilogies that you've been working on, and then there's Leviathan, which is a complete academic work. Mm. You know, what, what do you get out of those styles? What, what, what's the juice for you? Um, well, the obvious first thing I get is, uh, is paid. Um, they all pay. And if you were I, independently wealthy, would you still do these? Um, yeah, I probably would. I because it's what I it's what I know. I had a very bleak period in my late twenties, just before I turned thirty. Uh, I, I put the the manuscript for Falafel in the night before my thirtieth birthday because I partly because I promised myself I'd write a book by thirty, partly because that's just when the deadline fell. But I do recall thinking about the age of twenty eight or something, I was working as a freelancer and, you know, I had maybe half a dozen magazines I was filing for regularly and in freelance terms I was very successful. I could pick up the phone and lodge a story and and they'd run it. I wasn't making a huge amount of money out of it though. I was maybe pulling in 12 or 13,000 a year, uh, which is not unusual for, for freelancers. Uh, but it didn't matter because, you know, I was living the falafel lifestyle. I wasn't in a relationship. I didn't have kids. I had no commitments or responsibilities beyond looking after myself. And I, I could get along at a pretty low level of subsistence and still enjoy myself because, you know, you work for a magazine like Rolling Stone. There's always free tickets to movies and shows and mm. free CDs. And, you know, there's always books to be reviewed. Um, the, the things that I consumed generally came free because mm. of the work I was doing. But then I, I went I went through this stage where a couple of the mags I worked for collapsed, a couple of the editors moved on, I had a set to with a couple of people, and it just in the course of two weeks, this entire professional world I created just completely fell apart. And I remember having a... Uh, a period of about a month or so where I just thought I'm fucked I'm in my late 20s I know nothing I know literally nothing of any use to anybody other than how to tell a story that's my one skill it's the only thing I have and I don't seem to be able to turn a quid off it anymore and uh, I, I really, I had a period of, I don't know, a year or two. Uh, I, I got myself some part-time work uh, as an office manager for three aldermen on South Sydney Council. It was very undemanding. Um, and, it, you know, it, it brought a little bit of money in. But I, I, I had that period of really bleak where I was just thinking, I may have walked down a very, very long, steep dead end here. Because uh, if I can't write, then there's really nothing else I'm good for. That was the dead end of my thinking. Like, like I would have that thought and then come to a brick wall. There was nothing, mm, no way of turning around, no way of extracting myself from the, you know, six or seven years I put into writing. I, I couldn't backpedal, go do, you know, a law degree and become a lawyer. I had already figured out I wasn't fit for that kind of work, so... So what was the alternative at that point? Was it like go get a job on the council? Yeah, well, just keep plugging away. Eventually, in a left-handed gift, one of the magazines uh, I worked for collapsed. That was the Independent Monthly. And the deputy editor there, Michael Duffy, decided his escape hatch, he would set up a publishing company. 
uh, it's called Yellow Press in those days, it eventually became Duffy and Snellgrove. And, uh, they were the guys who did falafel. Michael just said to me, grabbed me in the office and said, um, you know, can you give me a stocking stuffer for Christmas because, you know, this magazine's on the way out and uh, I'm going to set up this publishing company but I, I need something that might sell, you know, a couple of copies. And um, I said, oh, look, I've got some flatmate stories I can probably do for you. Why don't I write you out a sample chapter, we'll see what it looks like. Because you know, the idea of doing it had never occurred to me until that point. So I did it. He liked the look of it, and he gave me a five-week deadline. So I threw that book together. It came out. It died in the arse, actually, for the first six months. Um, he was a very small publisher. He had no market power whatsoever. The book was the wrong shape. I'd insisted that it be square-shaped, like uh, Douglas Copeland's first um, edition of Generation X. And uh, that meant that no booksellers wanted to put it on their shelves because it stuck out. We were just very, very lucky, I think. So um, how did you get it out? Because it turned into a raging success. It's yeah. a cult icon. Yeah. Uh, look, two things, I suspect. There was a distributor up here. Um, Michael used independent distributors. There was one guy up here who really liked it as a book and just kept, just kept pushing and pushing and pushing bookstores to stock it. So he got a couple of them out there. And then there was uh, some actors who were on some dodgy Keating government scheme where they pooled their dole check and uh, got dole checks and then got trained to be more efficient unemployed actors. And part of their homework on this scheme they were on was to adapt a book for the stage. So they chose Falafel and um, it went berserk. Again, eventually, like the first week, it was very quiet. And then it just, uh, they ran into a pub and they didn't get a huge number of people through, mostly, you know, friends and family, because it ran just before Christmas. But the publican, you know, was doing his receipts for the week the show was on. He sold more beer. So he said to them, do you want to come back and do another week? See how you go. So they came back. He sold more beer. They sold a few more tickets. It started to pick up word of mouth, and then it, it ran at that pub uh, in Roselle for five years, I think, um, and developed its own cult following, yeah. people who came to it with no idea that there was a book that it had been based on. So I think the, the combination of those two things, of that play just ticking over down in inner western Sydney, and that distributor, that independent distributor in Brisbane, just, just plugging away and plugging away. Over about six or seven months, it got enough books onto the shelves that it was a classic word-of-mouth thing. The other, actually, the other thing, uh, it, it's sort of counterintuitive in a way, because Michael was such a small publisher, he had to make it work. It, it wasn't like, if, let me put it this way, if that book had come out with Random House or Pan Macmillan or HarperCollins, we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation, because it would have come out, died, and they would have gone... Nice try. But done, we're not, done a book. We're not, we're not doing that again. Yep. Um, so, you know, here's a box of unsold books for you. It's been nice. Don't be a stranger. And that would have been it. I would never have published another book again because... Would that have broken your spirit? No, not really, because I didn't see myself as a book writer. I My obsession was magazine features. That's all I wanted to oh, do. Okay. I, I wrote Falafel as a favour to Michael. Ah. And, so you never imagined this lifestyle that's developed? No, not at all. Goodness. Um, and when when it went off, 
It was a very pleasant surprise, but it was a it was a surprise. Whereas it was not at all a surprise for the six months it just lay on its ass with its feet in the air doing nothing but you mm. know dying. So you're saying because it was a small he was a small publisher. Yeah, because it was a, because Michael was a small publisher and he had mortgaged his house to set up his company. <laughs> he had to make it work. Feeling like, responsibility on your shoulders, John. He, um, no, that was uh, that was Michael's foolish decision to <laughs> set up a publishing company. Um, All so, on the back of a book of an unknown publisher. Well, there was a couple right. of there was a couple other books he put out too, but neither of them did any good. Although he did he did he had a couple of successes, Michael. Um, uh, and he, you know, he did all of my sort of indie books, but eventually just running, it just became too much for him just running the company. So he, he sold, he sold the distribution rights or he gave the distribution rights to Pan Macmillan and he now, you know, keeps the backlist turning over, but he doesn't publish anything new. But if he, if it wasn't for Michael, um, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't be in publishing at the moment. He had to make it work, and so he, he did make it work. So there's something you said for the small publishers. Yeah, there is. Like, people get themselves worked up at the idea of, you know, going with small publishing houses. Oh, you know, I'm not going to get the dump bins. I'm not going to get the life-size cardboard cut out at the front of the store. Well, no, you're not. Uh, but then you're not going to get dropped like, you know, a steaming hot turd six months down the track when you haven't sold that many copies mm. either. So, and you personally can have an impact on their success too because you could be more proactive with the small publisher compared yeah. with the big one, couldn't you? Yeah, that's right. You, you end up doing a lot more um, a lot more work for them. Uh, and you don't, you know, if they're a small publisher. They don't have 600 authors on their list. Mm. So, you know, there might be a dozen of you. Mm. You will work much more closely with them than you will with the big publishing houses. I mean, having said that, I now work for the big publishing houses. But I recently uh, let Michael... Uh, start work on an electronic, an e-book version of Falafel and uh, I think How to Be a Man. I'm not even sure he had the rights to them, to tell you the truth, because I long ago lost those contracts, but he wanted to do them and he reckoned he had the rights to them and, you know, I figure I, I owe him a big karmic debt, so he has gone off and, and started the, the process of turning Falafel into an e-book. I find Falafel an interesting book. In, in an alternative sense, I uh, over the last few years since I first met you, I've mentioned to a few of my greater circle of friends that I, I've met John Birmingham, and they go, who? And he wrote a little book, I say. He died with a Falafel in his hand, and they go, oh, yeah. The book's mm. more famous than you are. Oh, it is, completely. Which is, you know, I'm actually not unhappy with that, because mm. it means that I can, uh, I can go off and write a quarterly essay or a book like Leviathan or, you know, the, I'm writing a history of fear for um, Pam McMillan, well, Picador probably, at the moment. Uh, and people and don't automatically think that you're Yeah, a, it, a it actually, it, it, it can cause problems. Um, well, not problems, but it's, uh, some people think it a vulnerability. I, I wrote a, uh, a quarterly essay a couple of years ago that some academic didn't like and very foolishly for him, he you know, his attack on the the argument was fair enough, but he couldn't help himself. He just had to go there and make reference to the fact that you know who is this this clown who writes funny stories about share housing to be wading into you know public policy. Having opened that ad hominem line of attack, uh, he then got it back 
in spades. But I think in a way that probably headed off a few other attacks from, from that direction. But I, I, every now and then people still do it, you know, well, who are you to be talking about this? You know, you're just some idiot who had a lot of flatmates and, you know, stole their stories. Uh, and it's almost always when I'm writing in, in you know, about political or public policy areas. Um, and it... They don't even look up your Wikipedia entry by the sounds of it. And... No. Um, and it's... It, I can't say that it bothers me because it, it, they always open themselves to exactly the same attack. Well, you know, who are you to be here, let's say, on my blog commenting, you know, you, know, you have some postgraduate degree from Harvard in international relations. No, you're just some fucking mug punter who's decided to, you know, step up and, and give me a smack. Well, by those lights, you've got no more right to comment on this than me. So it's a ridiculous line of argument to, to take. It, it presumes that the only people who can uh, discuss these areas are are experts, but and having said that, the other thing I don't talk about very much is that you know I, I do have degrees in this area and, yeah. I, and I have worked in it. So, um, and it doesn't take much to uh, read between the lines when you read some of your novels to actually see the whole geopolitical thought that's gone into the depth of some of those novels. You know, alternative histories, mm. and you're going well. What would it be like in 1942 to have a heap of people from now go back there how would that impact society well and the funny thing is i've got them here somewhere on the the bookshelf behind me um academic historians are are indulging themselves in these um these kinds of uh, thought experiments more frequently because they find it 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 does open up um, a new way of of looking at data that people have been picking over for for decades they um i often wonder if um, Franz Ferdinand never being shot, World War One, World War Two wouldn't have happened. What society would we have today? Mm. Yeah, you know, that sort of yeah. discussion is fascinating. Yeah, counterfactuals they call them. Um, that's the academic word for okay. alternate history. Well, I've got to take home there. So, what about celebrity? You know, because you are a bit of a celebrity. You know, in the writing world, you're quite high up here in Australia. In the grad community, less so maybe, but. You know, you're known as this person who wrote Falafel. You, you're known as you, you sit on panels, writing panels at you know, book fests and things like this. What about the world of celebrity? How do you feel about that? Um, I'm kind of, you know, I'm relaxed with it because, you know, I'm more of a micro-celebrity than an actual celebrity. And um, I had those 10 years of working in, in magazines in particular before I wrote Falafel. So... Uh, you know, working for, for Rolling Stone and even mags like Inside Sport, you deal every day with the, the world of celebrity. You, you deal with um, with agents and, and promoters and celebrities. And uh, having done that, I had no misconceptions about the objectifying process of, of celebrity. One of the one of the great traps for people who become famous or, or infamous uh, who become known is that they think themselves subject to celebrity they are the subject of celebrity but they are not they are the object of celebrity celebrity is a process which turns people into objects and commodities and once you understand that and you you know you internalize it it changes your 
your approach and it also it, it stops you getting carried away with the idea of celebrity and it is easy to get carried away i remember very early on last days of the independent monthly they got a letter from some chick on the gold coast who had read falafel it was, it was an amazing letter it was um uh, dear John, read your book, loved it, loved it, uh, loved it so much. I've been photocopying pages and, and giving it to friends of mine. I said, no, thanks for nothing, bitch. Um, <laughs> said, and then the next paragraph goes, anyway, I've had sex with a lot of men. I had sex with a man once because I liked his shoes. I had sex with another guy because I was at a bus stop and he picked me up in the rain, so I threw him on. Um, anyway, I really liked your book and um, would like to have sex with you to say thank you. Um, if you're ever on the Gold Coast and you've got a spare 15 minutes, uh, please, please look me up. And she's got a little photo in there. She was hot, but, you know, nuts. And, you know, I'll have sex with you. And I was thinking, Jesus fucking Christ, you know. <laughs> I went to the editor. I said, look at this, would you? And he just roared with laughter. He was a very old-fashioned uh, 1950s-style journo. And um, he says, well, what do you want to do with this, Johnny? I said, well, maybe we could... Um, Maybe we could offer us like a subscriber prize or something, you know, get a subscription to the magazine and pretend to be JB for 15 minutes on the Gold Coast. Uh, so that was not the, the last time that happened. Thankfully, it happens less now that I'm, you know, greying and thickening up, <laughs> becoming an eminence crusade. But um, uh, it would be very, it would have been easy if I hadn't had those 10 years beforehand to to mm. fall prey to it and Do there's you, other traps as well particularly with social media i spent a lot of time online and i mean i don't need to explain the um the pitfalls of mm. things like twitter and, and facebook do you have to protect your privacy because you've got a, a element of celebrity do you do you have well, to work it, a lot compared to myself who has no celebrity Look, Do you have to be more careful? In a way, yes, and in a way, no. As you say, people often recognise my books rather than me. It's one of the nice things about being a writer. Like uh, Jonathan Franzen can probably walk down the street in New York and no one's going to harass mm. him. There's a billboard on Litton Road with your mug on it for the Brisbane Times at the moment. Yeah, but how many people notice that? You know, hey, hopefully just, they're, they're concentrating <laughs> on traffic as they drive past. So you're saying roadside advertising doesn't work? Um I don't know. I, 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 must... I saw it last night. Yeah, my kids Sorry. saw it the other day. Um, my son patted me on the back and went, good work. Look, it's, it's odd. Um, you know, I, I've gone into movies and been given movie tickets for free because the person on the counter recognised me. Oh, I'm yeah. reading your book. I love your book. Yeah. Yeah, don't tell a boss. Here's a free ticket. Yeah. I'm happy to take you know, that kind of backsheesh. That doesn't bother me. Uh, there's but do you have do you have issues with the stalkers and yeah, you look, need I, to protect I do. the family um, a bit? Not many issues because you know until that billboard went up, um, I was reasonably well protected from public view. Even though you know the the website's got my my picky on that picky's about two years out of date. Mm. And the back in the back of most books. And... Yeah, that's right. You know, and, and people don't, they just don't make the link between a static photo they might no. have seen two years ago. And I'm supposed to have a silent number, and, you know, I don't because Telstra fucked up. So um, occasionally, you know, some nut job will ring up wanting mm. me to read their manuscript. And, you know, the sort of people who will do that, who will ring somebody out of the blue, a complete stranger, and press their manuscript on, they're always nuts and they can't write. You know, if they could write, they would have some, you know, much more uh, conventional way of, of getting, getting in through mm. the the gates of the kingdom. And I remember once, 
I was just thinking about this yesterday. You know, the, the door knocked. Uh, it was a knock at the door, sorry. And I went up and it was some fucking poet. He just, you know, tracked me down. You know, wanted me to read his poetry and, you know, get him a publisher. And I was just thinking, my fucking God, you are so lucky. It's me, you know. Good old easygoing JB answering the door and not my wife, the privacy lawyer, because your ass would be in handcuffs now and you'd be getting dragged out to the police car and taken away, never to return. Goodness. Um, <laughs> so she's uh, very protective of the family. Yeah, well, Jane had a... Now, Jane had a taste of public life about 20 years ago and she didn't, didn't much like it, so... Um, she's also... You know, Jane knew me before was even writing for magazines. Yeah, you know, I am not JB to her. I'm mm. someone entirely different. Mm. You know, she doesn't like JB very much, truth be known. That's why you don't see her on my publicity tours. You know, JB's a fucking jerk. <laughs> um, so she... Well, you know that she uh, loves you for who you really are and not for this thing that you've mm. created, unlike you know, people who are like, yeah, celebrities. The chick with the spare yeah. 15 minutes on the gold case. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 15 minutes um, says something about her uh, opinion of you too, it doesn't does. it? It does, it mm. does. Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's an odd thing. Uh, it, it has its ups and downs, but it's, it, it's not like I'm on TV or anything. I can go down to the shops without being harassed. To tell you the truth, it's almost all upside. Being a micro-celebrity is much better than, than being an actual celebrity. As an example, I was in an underground car park in the city and lost my ticket. was driving out, thinking, oh, God, they're going to sting me for 80 bucks for the whole day. The guy who was taking my details down, um, he took my name, he looked up, he said, oh... Did you write that book about that aircraft carrier that went back in time? Uh, yeah, I did. He said, oh, mate, I love that book. And he said, look, just piss off. Just, you know, <laughs> no one will know, but he let me out. And, you know, that's the upside yeah, of celebrity. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and, you know, the crazy poets turning up at the front door, that's the definitely downside. a downside. But, um, you know, I explained to that guy that it was inappropriate. And, you know, I, I went off and I said, look, if you want to meet me, that's fine. I'm very easy to find. I am not a recluse. You can, you know, find me on the net very, very easily. You know, I'm happy to meet people, happy to meet you for a coffee, happy to tell you why your work is never going to be published. I figure it's, you know, important to get that shot in early. Mm, I've had that said by a couple of people recently too. Um, so... It's, yeah, I, I would prefer that it didn't happen, but, you know, it's just, it's part of the gig. First book I ever read of yours was Leviathan. I fell deeply in love with that book, and because of it, I fell deeply in love with Sydney. Mm. And uh, I then moved to Sydney shortly afterwards and lived there for you know, a period of time while I was working on Matrix. And I took what I learned from you as I lived there to explore the place. It was wonderful. And then I sort of learned about the other side of you, and I was surprised by the contrast. Mm. What is the real you? You know, would you love to do more of that egghead type intellectual stuff, or are you happy with the pulp? You know, are you happy, you know what, what what do you get out of producing these these two oh, sets look, of trilogies? I, I, I love it all. It's I I, I like um, both high and low culture. Um, is it necessary to have the balance in your life? Um. Yeah, look, the, the nice thing about it is, and particularly being freelance, is uh, you just do what you feel like, or I just do what I feel like. So um, uh, right now, uh, I am working, I'm actually working on my NaNoWriMo project, which is 
called, well, the working title is Demons of Butt Crack County, but uh, if it ever gets turned into a... Um, this sounds like something for eight-year-olds. It sounds like it, but it's not. It's it's actually, it's it's become a lot more serious than a... Uh, a NaNoWriMo book. Well, this tends to happen to your books, doesn't it? They yeah, tend it to morph. Uh, Leviathan was going to be far different to what it ended up, wasn't it? Yeah. Basically, rednecks versus demons. In the US? Yeah, set in, the, set in Georgia somewhere. The nice thing about this, this is the first truly fictional book I've ever written. All of the, like, you know, um, Weapons of Choice and uh, After America and, and Without Warning in particular, they're all as heavily researched as Leviathan was. Uh, to the point that there's a gunfight that Caitlin's involved in in Paris. I don't know whether I've still got the tag here on Google Earth. I had to... I, I spent two months writing that gunfight because... He's just, I just, I, I just needed bringing to... up Google Earth now. <sighs> well, that's one reason why I like those uh, novels that you've written is because there is this, you know, but for the circumstances of history, this is how it could play out. And I, I like that realism of it. I've never been a big one for fantasy. I've always liked science fiction because it has to be based in fact. Mm. I don't think I've got any more. Oh, here's, here's an obvious one here, Caitlin's farm. Yeah, this. I was looking for somewhere to uh, set the farm that um, Caitlin lives on. Okay. And so I uh, scoured the... Um, the south of England and, and settled on this place and so you know it's got street view I can pop down there and walk along and you know you, you follow this road and, and this is the road that she jogs along and you know there's a somewhere over here there's a, a field in which Brett is attacked and the whole thing is okay. mapped out. I, so I, it could be almost biographical. Yeah, I remember years and years ago, probably 30 years ago, hearing somebody talk about... It wasn't Freddie Forsyth talking about his books, it was somebody discussing them and why they were so popular. And they said, it's because if you read a Frederick Forsyth novel, you can go to the place where it's set and walk through it. They're almost like tour guides. And you know, he does he, he does an enormous amount of, of research. And for, something, for some reason, that stuck in my head. So when I was doing these books, I was obsessed with the idea that I had to get it right. Like if there was a gun battle on a street in Paris, I had to describe that street accurately. I had to say, you know, this tree was here blocking that shot. You know, the, the door of that shop was recessed so Caitlin could dive in there and get cover. The beauty of this uh, Demons and, and Rednecks book it's all bullshit. Like the, the um, complete fantasy. Yeah, butt crack is is a county. It, it's purpose made by me as a setting for a book. It's a, a mountain which is split open six hundred million years ago. So there's a valley in the middle of it. A sort of a crevasse runs out one side. That's the main um, access point. And there's a, a, a failed railway tunnel on the other side providing it. But the valley itself inside. The mountain, it's pretty much cut off from the outside world, which is important when you, you need to um, uh, have a story where people have no um, have no call on outside support. And it's really, it's it's great. Um, you know, you just, a story issue comes up, you know, it's like, I can just make stuff up. Like, you know, just, just throw something in there. So, um, because, I mean, this is just what I'm working on today. But, you know, sitting over there... Uh, a whole bunch of books I need to uh, to work my way through for the rewrite of Leviathan. How's that going? Oh, oh my fucking god! Um, I'm I'm it, so looking forward is, to that. It's kicking my ass. Uh, I really just wish I could, you know, 
block out three months and work on nothing but it. But because mm. you know, it's been a decade now, hasn't it? It has, and that's that's why I'm I'm doing it. Um, you know, there's a book over there that I'm reading for my history of fear. Uh, there's a whole bunch of them up on the bookshelf. So I enjoy both high and low culture. I love television. I love video games. Mm. You know, at the same time, uh, I enjoy reading the classics. You know, my library we walk through upstairs. It's got a lot of the old classics in them, the, the Romans and Greeks, and uh, I'll quite happily sit down for a, half an hour a night and just flick my way through them. I'm not an obsessive about them, I don't, I don't spend days reading them, but I've, you know, I've got quite a bit of that stuff on my Kindle, and uh, you know, it's important if you are going to work as a writer to you know, actually read your antecedents. It's, it's funny you ask the, the question about the, the, the fiction, non-fiction, serious, non-serious, because it was a question I got asked again and again on my last book tour. After America was the fifth genre novel that I'd written, and I think, for whatever reason, not so much the publishing industry, but the much smaller and more parasitic critical industry which hangs off it in Australia suddenly realised that I wasn't pissing around, that um, I, I was writing these books for real. And so After America was reviewed by some really serious uh, publications, but it, it was the, the reviews were all these completely confused and, and wrong-headed uh, abominations, really, because they, they, they just they couldn't accept the book and they couldn't criticise the book on its own merits. Like, you know, there are without warning and after America are pretty good like you know by the time I wrote those I knew what I was doing without weapons of choice that book's got serious flaws and I could you know give you a 20 minute novel writing lesson about all of the mistakes that I made writing that none of them absolutely none of them were picked up in the, the critical response. It was all very Is that much, because they didn't take you seriously? Yeah, it was all, you know, they didn't review the book on its own merits. It was all about, you know, the pornography of the violence and the nastiness of the language and um, yeah, the usual yes. issues that they have with genre fiction. I, I, I'm pretty sure that I will always work all the different ends of the, or segments of the market. Like, I will always write dinky stuff. I will always write, you know, just dumb, funny columns and uh, I'll always write genre because I, I love reading all that stuff so it's it's only natural that I'd write it. And will you always publish in all the forms? Yeah, especially the new evolving ones? Well, that's, that's really a question about the industry, isn't it, rather than mm. me. Um, this Demons and Rednecks novel was really, it started out as an experiment. I just, I, I have uh, concerns about the, the business model of publishing over the medium term. I just wanted to, and still want to, create myself an alternative form of, of, of telling stories. So for me, I figured rather than writing a 200,000 word novel that's takes a year to publish because it goes through all the different layers of two or three different publishing companies. What I might do is do something much shorter, much punchier, but publish it myself yeah. as purely as an electronic book. Fortunately, unfortunately, whatever, I happened to mention, mention this project to someone at my publishing company. They're now quite interested to see it. So, I will, In a way, it's been taken out of your hands now. Yeah, this will probably end up being a conventional book. But I still, at some stage in the next... I don't know, 18 months, three years, I will self-publish some title or other that my 
mainstream publishers aren't interested in. And I'll do it purely as a uh, as an experiment. Are you developing, unfortunately, um, too much of a demand? Like your publishers want you, and basically anything you put out, they'll take. Oh no, that's you know, there's some shit I'll write that they wouldn't go anywhere near because they're they're too smart. Um, look, <laughs> supply and demand is an issue. Um, I have. I have a lot of work on, like I've, I've got three columns a week, usually one or two features a month. Um, I'm under contract for four books at the moment and then, you know, there's always, you know, something like this will pop up every two weeks, say. Mm. Um, I'm flying down to Sydney in January to record some stuff for, you know, Foxtel's show about Dinkamozzi criminals or whatever. Um, I went down to Sydney two weeks ago to give a talk about uh, architecture. I've done four of those this year. Why? I don't know. I just have. Um, so there's always there's always something on. And of course, I'm the I'm the at-home parent. You know, in a short while I'm going to have to go pick up kids, and my working day is effectively over because. Uh, the Sabo, I will I promise them they can go cash in some ice cream vouchers, so we'll go do that. Then I've got Thomas to cricket training at five, then I feed them. Then we go off to uh, jiu-jitsu lesson for them at six o'clock, where I help out on the mat, because I'm a senior student in the grown-up class. Then Jane will pick them up about seven, take them home, and I'll stay for the adult class. Uh, so assuming I don't break my arm in that again, I should be home by about quarter past nine by which point I'll be well and truly ready for a drink and uh, not at all interested in coming back down here to the keyboard and firing up again. But you often do, you often work at night too, don't you? I do, I wish I didn't. You've got um, a, this is what I mean about your work ethic. Well, it's no, it's, a, it's really about the size of my mortgage and the um, and the demands, you know, those, those columns. I mean, luckily I've written tomorrow's column already, um, but sometimes, you know, nothing suggests itself until quite late in the mm. evening. Um, Are you a fast typist? I uh, use dictation software now. Uh, since you broke your arm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I broke it a year ago. It's been out of, out of the splint for ages, but I just, I, I really like dictation software for creating rather than for editing. It's very, very good. Very fast. I just, I have a lot of stuff. Like I, I really, I need to be doing, just to keep up, I need to do 2,000 words a day. That's actually my mantra. 2,000 words a day, 10,000 words a week, week. 40,000 words a month, 400,000 words a year. Two books. Yeah. Well, Ibish. one book, another one started, and all of the columns. Yeah. And stuff. Yeah. But that's it's it. Two thousand words a day um, is what I need to do, which is why you will quite frequently find me on Twitter of a mid evening, you know, hammering. This is Sparta. Like, yes. Before yes. I go off and and do another sesh. Mm. Well, I won't take up any more of your time. And thanks for spending a little bit with us and letting us know about your life and that of a pretty good writer, I reckon. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks, John. I really appreciate it, mate. Cool, buddy. See you.
in the naked city. This has been one of them.